Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Platform Enterprise, the show that platforms the projects and visions of people around the world working hard to make their impact a positive one. In addition to the podcast, I also release a weekly newsletter investigating the themes explored on that week's podcast. You can find these investigations on stories.platformenterprise.com and you can also sign up to receive them every week in your inbox. Sign up today to read my investigation into a Hollywood A-lister who is yet to return any of the money associated with 1MDB. What is 1MDB? Well, you've come to the right place. On the show this week is phenomenal journalist Claire Rucastle-Brown. Claire single-handedly exposed the largest corruption scandal the world has ever seen, which resulted in $4.5 billion being stolen from the Malaysian people to line the pockets of the Prime Minister and his associates. Through her work, Claire exposed a global network of elites, including Hollywood actors, politicians and world banks, amassing huge amounts of illegal wealth to fund parties, lifestyles and even a couple of Hollywood movies. Claire is the freelance journalist who connected all the dots and puts her life on the line to do so. This conversation details her case study of the criminally super rich and the vital role media has to play in holding the elite accountable. Claire has written two books on the subject, The Sarawak Report and The Wolf Catcher, both of which are linked in the show notes. I urge you to read them to support her continued investigation and to learn more about the offshore structures and libel laws that incentivize corruption and keep the elite in power. So Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. This seems like a very, very sort of special episode of uh, Platform Enterprise to have such a distinguished journalist on the show. Oh, you can make that face, but you're definitely distinguished. Well, thank you. Thank you, Rachel, for for inviting me to uh, join your interesting uh, series of talks. Um, Thank you. So um, you have been sort of called the, the person that uncovered the the, lar- the world's largest heist. Um, and yeah, I imagine that there might be some people listening to this that, that don't know what it is actually. So could you explain a little bit about the, the world's largest heist and, and what you've done over the past few years? Yes. Well, I think it's interesting that one of the reasons that so few people outside of the financial world know about the 1MDB scandal is because of the power of the people who were involved. Um, And by power, I mean the power to intimidate the media into refraining from covering the story. Um, It took about five years in all, bit by bit, uh, you know, as piece by piece, the information came out. And then you made some big progress with with the uh, um, Department of Justice in the United States um, unveiling their prosecutions. Um, and during that time, you know, I, I could not, by and large, get the wider media and certainly the British media, which is so trammeled by um, rigorous libel laws that, that really allow um, the, the powerful and the wealthy to operate um, with almost with impunity as far as being held to account by the media is concerned, um, wanting to cover this story at all. Um, so I was there, you know, uh, putting my neck out and really being targeted by a, you know, a pushback operation um, to discredit my reporting on this. Uh, and as a result, you know, it's a great flamboyant story and people weren't hearing about it. They weren't hearing about the billions being splashed by Hollywood top actors that have been stolen from one of the developing countries 
in the Far East. Um, it's getting out now bit by bit. It, <laughs> it's all, it, it, everything you just said is is quite um, shocking and insidious and dangerous. And yet that final sentence about um, the elite in Hollywood essentially spending mm-hmm. billions of stolen money from developing countries in the world, it seems almost a, like a the plot of a cartoon about you know the the wealthy or the elite of today and it seems that so many people are aware that this kind of stuff might be happening or probably is happening and yet it's not being uncovered and yet here you are you've uncovered it and nobody's willing to talk about it well yes i mean you know you've got the world's most powerful bank um that is still pushing back on this goldman sachs it does now as of last month have a deferred prosecution agreement hanging over it, i.e. that's an admission for the first time by Goldman Sachs that it acted in a criminal manner um, and that the Department of Justice could still, unless they're very, very good boys, um, and of course they've paid up several billion dollars worth of fines, but they could still be prosecuted for those crimes. So that's progress. But I think really, to me, um, if I'm going to talk about 1MDB and the whole investigation, um, it opened my eyes or at least confirmed and illustrated what is going on in our world. And for me, it was a real educational journey. Um, A lot of us can be suspicious, you know, that um, certain people are taking mega advantage in a criminal manner um, of, you know, the vulnerable and, uh, and, and cornering our resources on this planet. Um, and, and really, this was my case study uh, to show mm-hmm. exactly what's going on and how our financial and global systems have been gently structured over the years to make it possible for the wealthy and the powerful to bypass the rule of law and to treat the planet as if it was their playground. Um, And of course, I'm talking about the offshore system, banking secrecy, um, you know, uh, money laundering havens, uh, you know, within Europe, such as Luxembourg and Switzerland, and of course, the Treasure Islands. Um, and the failure of regulators to um, to act in most cases. Um, and of course, if you've got the media being subtly muzzled by libel laws, um, which is the case, and increasing privacy laws um, and uh, intellectual property laws and all the rest, then really, you know, um, we've nailed it down. Um, if you're talking, you know, from the perspective of the people who are benefiting from this, the large companies and, and the criminally super rich. Um, so 1MDB was my way of um, illustrating what was happening. And it took me about five years to do it. Um, and I started um, at the grassroots, at the ground level of what corruption does. Um, I grew up um, in one of the most beautiful and richly resourced corners of the world um, in the jungle of Borneo, um, which is an island in the tropics, which has the greatest biodiversity on the planet. Um, Because I grew up there, you know, I had a strong, passionate um, love for this place. I knew how valuable its wildlife and its fauna and flora were um, to all of us on the planet. Um, And of course, um, so I had an environmental um, sensitivity. I was a journalist, so I followed these things. 
And I was aware um, that there was this unreported scandal, underreported scandal, which was the total destruction of Borneo and other similar places on the planet um, for, you know, um, for, for mass agriculture. Um, people do now know about the um, oil palm crisis um, that is driving a lot of this deforestation. Certainly in Borneo, it was. Um, and I decided as a journalist, um, I'd, uh, you know, I'd given up my mainstream work, that I would do my little bit in my little corner of the world to try and explain why this was happening. It was completely unnecessary. It was utter poor governance. Um, the native people of Borneo is a small population of, of indigenous people were getting nothing from this destruction. They were being thrown out of their homes, their livelihoods. They could no longer um, live off the jungle and, and off the rivers, which had once you know, fed them sustainably for, for hundreds of years. Um, and the reason for it was a cartel of uh political decision makers and their business cronies who were making all the money, avoiding paying tax by and large and siphoning that money out um, into the advanced economies where they wanted to spend it and invest it and make themselves even more rich as billionaires. Um, and they were able to do that secretively using the offshore system, using our banks, using an army of Western professionals who were quietly showing them the way, facilitating all of this. So um, I set about um, using the newly invented internet from about 2008, mm -hmm. um, both digging into this situation, this blatant corruption, this blatant abuse of human rights, um, and also uh, reaching back. Uh, you know, I, I realized that um, you, it was vital. There's no point just covering something in a distant world. This was you know, this the people of the country were being what didn't know what was happening. They were being kept um, in the dark about what was going on and why their lives were so terrible. Um, there was a very very oppressive government. There was a you know totally managed media, and I decided you know I'll just have a little platform, and anyone who's interested can can just go on and and, and see what I'm reporting on. And um, so, so I started a blog called the Sarawak Report, and it was it was directed at the people of Sarawak and Malaysia. Um, it was for their consumption to open their eyes um, to the things that their local reporters and journalists knew about but couldn't report on because they get clapped in jail, basically. Um, so, um, but I could do this thanks to the internet from the other side of the world. Um, and and I I was amazed. Um, I had a well, uh, you know, I, and delighted. Um, I I had an immediate response, and um, immediately people in Malaysia were very interested in what I had to say. That was clearly um, confirming a lot of local suspicions. Um, so I reported on corruption for several, for about two or three years at a state level. Um, and I'm talking about billion dollar, multi billion dollar corruption by state mm -hmm. leaders, by political potentates who'd been in power for decades, um, until eventually, um, frustrated by the lack of, of action <laughs> um, from the authorities, really, um, you know, who should have been, by then have been tapping on the doors of some of these gentle, gentlemen who'd been um, stealing from their people, 
Um, I started to look at, um, you know, the, the, the corruption at the very highest level, um, namely the prime minister of, of the Malaysian government. Um, there was a very suspicious uh, slush fund that he had started up soon after he got into power. And it was much gossiped about. Uh, this was one MDB, one Malaysia development of um, Bahad, which means uh, fund, really, or company. Um, and... Um, People were, you know, behind the scenes were talking about this. It was an obvious corruption exercise, but um, it was very hard to prove it. Um, it was supposed to be a development fund whereby the Malaysian government was um, borrowing billions on the international markets, supposedly uh, in some kind of sovereign, as like some kind of quasi-sovereign wealth fund, um, in order to invest it to make more money. Um, of course. You know, that's not how sovereign wealth funds are actually structured or, or, or justified. A sovereign wealth fund is usually, um, you know, something that, um, you know, a country's resources wealth might be put into. You know, if you're producing oil and you've got an excess of, of wealth, you put it into a wealth fund to invest for the um, for the benefit of the nation, um, but this wasn't um, this wasn't excess cash that Malaysia had. It was expensively borrowed cash on the international markets. Um, that the prime minister of the country, who was also the finance minister, was touting that he would somehow be able to make a great profit on it for the country. Um, you know, compared to say ordinary business being able to make a profit, the the people whose taxes he was using to borrow that money um, would normally be considered better at making entrepreneurial decisions than a government. <laughs> um, so everyone could see that this was a bogus, a bogus venture. And of course, um, it soon after I I started to get interested about a year after it had been launched, when it became clear that uh, you know they weren't. Um, they weren't being accountable. Uh, this fund was um, was delaying on providing its accounts and it was changing its auditors all the time. It went through three lots of top accountancy firms um, and there were clearly, you know, quarrels going on about, about you know, um, laying out the company's accounts. Um, and, of course, the reason was that, you know, about half of the billions that had been raised um, actually, sorry, um, I'm 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 being modest. Um, nearly all of the billions that were being raised were being stolen uh, by the associates, uh, prime minister, well, by the prime minister's proxies. In particular, um, a young Chinese boy, uh, Malaysian boy, uh, called uh, Joe Lo, who was in his mid twenties. Um, who was acting as the prime minister's proxy um, in organising for these um, extraordinary thefts uh, to take place. Um, so I started reporting on various anomaly, anomalies to do with 1MDB, um, as others were, but I was somewhat more trenchant. Um, until mid-2013, um, I was passed a very interesting document from within the bond trading community, um, which um, illustrated, well, it, it was basically the offering launched by Goldman Sachs uh, for one of three massive borrowings that this um, this fund was doing. Um, they, they issued a total of $6.5 billion worth of bonds um, at a very high interest rate for a government borrowing with a government-linked company. 
Um, and uh, through three separate tranches um, that were all underwritten by Goldman Sachs. Um, and that was between 2012 and 2013. And what was particularly suspicious about them was that they weren't, once again, they weren't being advertised on the open bond market. Um, the whole thing was being secretly conducted by Goldman Sachs with its private customers. And no one had actually seen the terms and conditions of the bonds. Um, and so when I got this document, I looked through it with um, with a relative of mine, actually, who was an expert on bonds. And, and you know, he just went through it and said, this is ridiculous that the, the commission that Goldman Sachs is taking, which is written in this in this offering is, is like a hundred times what any bank would expect to take. You know, that's a suspicious red flag. And then the interest rate is ridiculous, ludicrous and unnecessary. What's going on here? And then there was another very strange aspect to it, which was that um, the Abu Dhabi Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, IPIC, was acting as some kind of guarantor for a Malaysian government-backed bond. It was, you know, it was all very, very odd. And um, very little writing had been done about it. Um, I mean, there'd been one or two careful um, articles in the financial press about um, Goldman Sachs' big, you know, um, bonanza with these bonds in the Far East. But again, you know, everyone is so cautious around the rich and powerful when it comes to reporting. Um, so I thought, well, to hell with that. And I wrote an article suggesting that the... Um, U.S. authorities should investigate their most powerful bank because this stank like a rotten fish. Um, my contact emailed me immediately after and said, "You've got forty-eight hours. If Goldman Sachs haven't sued you, then you then you're right." <laughs> um, <laughs> they didn't sue me, and I thought, "Right, okay, I'm going to go after this." Um, and I have been going after Goldman Sachs ever since. And um, and I think I've been thoroughly um, proven right, obviously, by the latest um, deferred prosecution against that bank. Um, meanwhile, um, you know, the other bits and pieces of information started to come in where I could get a chink on the story, um, Malaysia side, about 1MDB and about those thefts. Um, and um, it started me off on an adventure of reporting and discovery. And as I say, it illustrated to me how the financial system enables um, powerful rulers within their own countries, kleptocrats, to steal with impunity and hide the money in our countries. It's an unbelievable almost story um one that seems almost stranger than fiction well it felt like it it felt like being in some kind of you know living in a movie as you know yeah. many of the people that um you know that i lived through this with you know that it was people mm. in most enormous characters and and all of them seemed straight out of central casting you know and many many of my Companions in this adventure used to say, my goodness, you know, this is like living in a movie, you know, when's it going to end? Mm. Um, I mean, we're to, in the end, uh, six, uh, about, um, hmm, well, 
over five billion was stolen in cash. I mean, and that's left a bill, of course, of, of well over double that, uh, because, you know, um, the money has to be repaid with interest. Um, and then, you know, more billions were stolen in order to try and cover up the whole. Um, so in total, you know, we're approaching, what, eight billion uh, stolen from the Malaysian people that now has to be paid back with interest. Um, and, and, you know, you have a spiraling debt um, that, that's been uh, left on the on this, you know, vulnerable nation. Um, and um, so many people got caught up on the, in the way. Um, uh, you, you, you had these enormous characters. Uh, Joe Lowe himself was an astonishing young man. And, you, you know, uh, the, the chutzpah of, of a 26-year-old boy that, you know, dazzles a prime minister into, you know, into believing that he can hide all this money and, and, and squirrel it out of the country for him and come up with this complex um, offshore, um, you know, structure for, for robbing 1MDB. Um, and then, you know, of course, being being that he was in his 20s, being that he was in charge of billions that have been stolen, um, he couldn't resist, but um, sort of kind of going on the world's biggest party. And mm. that's how I caught them. Um, it was because Joe Lowe couldn't really, um, you know, um, just keep his head down. Uh, and from within a week of the first heist um, of $700 million, he stole straight into his own bank account. Um, within a week of that, Joe Lowe was was over in Las Vegas with his entourage of buddies, um, wowing even Las Vegas by the extraordinary spending and, and ostentation of their partying. Um, he was then he then moved on lock, stock, and barrel to one of the poshest flats in New York and started spending. Uh, you know, literally millions in New York nightclubs, um, you know, buying crystal champagne for, you know, Hollywood starlets. And it started to get reported. It started to get reported in the media in America. Who was this mm. man of mystery? Uh, and that started bouncing back into the Malaysian press. It caught my eye. And um, so people started wondering, you know, everyone knew this guy was an advisor on one MDB, and then suddenly he pops up partying in a way that the Western press is beginning to follow. Mm. Um, but when I hit, when I knew I'd, you know, joined the dots was uh, a couple of years later um, with uh, the release of one of Hollywood's most famous films, The Wolf of Wall Street, which happened in early 2014. And it was over Christmas in the run-up to that that I received an email from my Malaysian contacts to say that um, the extremely um, flamboyant, um, powerful and hugely disliked wife of the prime minister had been pushing education officials in Malaysia to um, show, obviously at cost to the public, um, this new upcoming movie to school children in the country um, as a, as an, you know, and, and the reason was that this would uh, advise them on a life that they shouldn't lead. <laughs> you know, Malaysia is, is a very, um, you know, conservative Muslim country and anyone who's seen Wolf of Wall Street, I don't think you'd show it to anybody's children, let alone to, um, you know, strict Muslim 
um, uh, you know, children. In fact, in fact, when it actually came down to it, the Muslim uh, clerical board that, um, uh, you know, that censors films banned Wolf of Wall Street from mm. the whole of Malaysia, let alone the classroom. But, you know, one couldn't wonder, but why? And someone had done a bit of research and had identified that um, Rosma's son, who was the stepson of the prime minister, um, was the producer of the movie and um, had, you know, somehow managed to get the 100 million that had been invested in that Leonardo DiCaprio extravaganza, which, of course, was all about a huge theft and the spending of the money in the most raucous and inappropriate way. So so I this was so the Wolf of Wall Street hmm. was funded indirectly by 1MDB. Well, Rachel, so I start looking into this. I start Googling. And this was actually the last Christmas with my mum. We were were there. She wasn't so well. Um, And, um, you know, I found myself in the middle of the Christmas sort of melange, just burrowing burrowing online, you know, into my Mm. computer and not really helping as I should, um, as I started to put the dots together. Yeah. Um, because when I started looking into the launch of the movie, suddenly there was this Joe Lowe character, the advisor ah. on 1MDB, the big spender. He was there in every single launch picture, standing next to Reza Aziz, the producer son of the Prime Minister, and uh, Leo DiCaprio, Martin Scorsese, Margot Robbie. What's fat little Joe Lowe doing in there? <laughs> well, I wrote an article. And I questioned in that article that what you've just questioned. Could, could Jolo's presence be an indication that some of those billions that appeared to be missing from the accounts of 1MDB could have found their way into the 100 million budget behind Wolf of Wall Street? Um, I, of course, was immediately um, attacked by a series of legal threats Hmm. Um, but you know to cut a very long story short yes I'd hit the nail on the head that's exactly where the money had come from oh and I was later to prove in searing detail one went once it got to work on the story and started tracing exactly where the money had gone from one MDB into the bank account of Reza Aziz's Red Granite Productions in order to pay for Wolf of Wall Street and several other films. There was much more than 100 million that was taken. And that was just one of the many expenditures. There were jets. There was one of the world's super yachts that cost $250 million. There was massive partying to entertain Leo DiCaprio. Picasso's bought by Joe Lowe to give to Leo DiCaprio. Um, Sets of diamonds and a, a crystal piano that were bought by Joe Lowe out of the stolen money to give to um, uh, Miranda Kerr, who was one of the many glamorous uh, Hollywood, um, uh, you know, females who seemed to um, fall for this pudgy young um, uh, Chinese Malaysian from Penang. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I can't think what she saw in him, but anyway, she swapped him for the Snapchat billionaire who she eventually married, didn't she? Um, <laughs> so, but you know, he had a string of these sorts of ladies receiving lovely gifts, and, and, and none more so, of course, than Rosma Mansour, the Prime Minister's wife herself, um, who Jolo the other day, um, a, a recording has just been released, and, and Jolo has acknowledged in that that at least half a billion dollars 
was spent on diamond jewellery uh, for Rosma Mansour out of the stolen 1MDB money. Of course, Good. another... Another billion dollars of the stolen money went into her husband, the Prime Minister's uh, bank account in KL as well, in order to buy elections, um, fund their lifestyle um, and cover whatever other uh, political, um, uh, you know, uh, purposes he needed it for. All of this came out in the end um, after my uh, reporting and then series of leaks that I I, I managed to obtain um, provoked um, at last... Um, an investigator by regulators who I would say ought to have spotted that there was a problem long before, but actually it took it took the media, it took, and, and you know, it only took me to be honest, um, you know, to uh, to reveal um, you know the the, the concerns about this whole um, affair uh, before uh, regulators who ought to have picked up on the money flows earlier um, got to grips, but they did. I just want to pause for a second because um, a, cu- a couple of thoughts that have sprung to mind. I mean, the first is that <laughs> this is a fantastic uh, example of why trickle down in economics just doesn't work because money was taken from essentially indigenous people and then used in the the elite and luxury echelons of society to, to generate more wealth for, for people that clearly didn't need it and to spend wealth on people that didn't need it. I mean, I don't think Miranda Kerr needs anybody buying her a crystal piano. Um, <laughs> I think trickle the- down economics is, you know, you have to come up with some excuse for stealing everybody's money. <laughs> of course. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that... I'm thinking of, and this might be way off base, but, you know, in a time of the Me Too era, i.e. when people are being called out for abuses of power, uh, for unfair treatment of people, why have these Hollywood stars and financial elite not been hung up to dry? I mean, why is the Wolf of Wall Street not, you know, on one of those lists of, you know, we, we don't platform this, we don't talk about this, we don't, well, you know, we don't encourage this. Rachel, I'll give you an exclusive. Leo DiCaprio appears to be the king of Hollywood, and he doesn't want this story bandied around. Um, and it seems to me that everybody is kowtowing to uh, Leo's sensitivities on this matter. He would rather be promoted as the actor environmentalist um, who is seeking to save the planet than as someone who actually benefited from a bonanza of theft um, indirectly resulting from the corruption that was destroying the Borneo jungle. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems that right now most people in Hollywood would rather keep their careers and not upset Leo, but I'm a bit loud-mouthed, so I'm saying it. This is interesting because um, I have heard, and I'm not sure how, it might be just from coming from a family of journalists, um, I have heard in the past that the environmentalism that has been attached to Leo DiCaprio's career over recent years was, in fact, a PR front after his nth attempt to fail winning an Oscar that actually he needed to curtail yes, the party yes, boy you, image. You know, it's a bit like being royalty, isn't it, winning an Oscar these days? And royals are expected to, to do good. Mm. So 
you know, if you want to be, you know, an, an Oscar winner, you, you've got to have all sorts of good causes that you do beyond, you know, appearing in, in movies that may or may not be great. Um, and so we've seen this. Um, we've seen uh, Hollywood aspiring actors adopting various, you know, worthy causes. Um, but one does sometimes wonder if um, their hearts are entirely in it. Mm, mm-hmm. So because of certain people's positions in, in societies all around the world, but ex- exclusively elite and powerful ones, um, the public aren't being given the information required to make educated choices about who they do or do not support. Um, people are being allowed to walk free without prosecution. I mean, Goldman Sachs is up for a uh, deferred prosecution, but I mean, I actually read th- this morning and I might have my information wrong, but the, the prime minister that embezzled all of this money that stole from his people is now was booted out, but is now back in, in coalition. Is that correct? Yes, he's been found guilty, uh, but of course he's appealing, um, and appeals will, you know, deliberately take years. Um, and while he appeals, um, he's allowed to continue sitting in Parliament, and um, his party, you know, has made no moves to sort of um, boot him out or blackball him, or um, you know, and, and and the general view is that you know he'll keep appealing until some, you know, the king pardons him or something. Um, you know, um, so um, and yes, uh, there has been a um, there's been an effective political coup in Malaysia. So after after the one MDB scandal was exposed, and this is the power of the media. This is the, this is the role of the media in a democracy. Mm. Once people realised what had happened, uh, they found the determination and anger to unite to throw out for the very first time. Uh, the coalition that had had a grip on Malaysia and had not been, um, you know, released its grip on power since independence for 60 years, that government for the first time was voted out in 2018, largely because of the fury of the population on discovering the the kleptocracy surrounding 1MDB. Um, So a year and a half later, um, the same powerful... Uh, forces, the same powerful political parties uh, that uh, had been booted out, uh, managed to gain enough defections from, uh, you know, the elected parliamentarians in order to stage a backdoor coup. Um, In fact, their majority is highly suspect. Um, They probably, they, you know, but there's been a Um, Parliament has been largely closed down ever since the coup um, under the guise of COVID um, and the country's being run now effectively by, you know, a a political coup, um, which has uh, elbowed Parliament out of the picture. So that's the situation you have. And and the former convicted prime minister is part of that coalition behind the backdoor coup. It's astonishing. It's astonishing that, that all of this information can come out and all of the this be revealed. But actually, actually, the fact that um, someone can embezzle billions of dollars from his own people and yet somehow retain power just goes to show how powerful the powerful are and how much systematic change needs to be done. Like it's not just a couple of bad apples, but we have created systems that allow for and and, and engender. Um, such abuses of power day in, day out. 
I one of the things that I again for me it's been an education um and um one of the uh, speeches that struck me most um, was that of Andy McCabe, um, who subsequently became the head of the FBI before um, uh, Donald Trump uh, sacked him. But at that time was the deputy head um, when uh, the joint announcement between the Department of Justice and the um, FBI was made, um, saying that they had um, seized uh, nearly $2 billion worth of assets um, linked to 1MDB in Malaysia and, and basically issuing the prosecution, the civil prosecution um, against Joe Lowe um, uh, and indirectly Najib for stealing that money. Um, and in it, uh, he explained why America and the advanced economies need to take this seriously. Corruption that appears to be happening in a distant place across the other side of the world, it threatens us um, just as it threatens the vulnerable people who are being stolen from. Because that powerful criminal money is entering our systems and is polluting our systems. It's corrupting our people. It's corrupting our politics. Um, and um, we need to get these criminal actors, these wealthy criminal actors, out of our countries. So it's a global problem. And, and that's illustrated. I mean, part of this huge web of corruption that I've been unveiling through 1MDB, like, you know, like a blood, it, it just shows, it's like a barium meal going through the bloodstream of the global financial system. You see exactly how corruption travels. Um, you know, several really powerful and important um, actors in the American political system were being bought up by the money. Um, most recently, Elliot Broidy, uh, the former chairman of the Republican Committee and a close ally of Donald Trump, um, has pleaded guilty um, to a story that I was amongst the first to expose. He, he received $8 million from Joe Lowe, um, plus a promise of $79 million more if there was a success in closing down the 1MDB scandal, investigation in, in, in oh America. God. So Joe Lowe hired this powerful Republican, the chairman of the National Committee, to lobby to get the uh, Department of Justice to close down the 1MDB investigation against Najib and Joe Lowe. And all that came out. I mean, I, I got a leak um, and I exposed that he was he was, you know, linked to Joe Lowe back in 2018. Um, now we have the full story of what happened, you know, um, and, and there were others. There were others in the Obama administration who were also bribed uh, earlier by one through one MDB money um, in order to try and um, stop the one MDB investigations. And to influence and to influence American policymaking. So um, this is why this is a global threat. You know, we live in a global world um, and corruption affects us all. Um, and we, we, we're all endangered by it in the same way that we're all endangered by the consequences of stripping out the Borneo jungle in terms of climate change. Hmm. Do you think um, that wealth at a certain level erodes integrity because this seems to be a a culture free epidemic 
of corruption happening in the east the west across borders i think greed is a you know is is one of our most dangerous and addictive um sins weaknesses um and um you know um it, it uh, it's insidious um and i think that um if a certain set of people consider that they have impunity mm. um and that they can get away with anything and that they're above the law, um, then greed takes hold of them. Um, and, you know, there, there is never enough once you've, um, once you've started stealing like this and you get trapped by it. Um, you know, somebody who abuses their public office uh, to commit a crime of theft um, is then trapped because they need that public office to protect them from the consequences of their actions. And so, therefore, they're led to authoritarian and oppressive um, forms of government. Um, and bingo, there you are. You've got a dictator. Right. Okay. I wonder then, um, in a time where we're questioning a lot the, the role of, of capitalism, what that has to play in the, the degradation of the environment and the abuses of human rights all around the world, and considering your, as you say, case study, in um, abuses of, of power and th immense theft. In your opinion, do you think it's possible to have a democratic capitalist society? Yeah, we just need rules. I mean, I think since the 1980s, um, there has been a deliberate pushback by interested parties influencing politicians um, to uh, make it easier for them to avoid um, abiding by the rules and regulations that we need to ensure that um, individuals don't gain too much um, of the pie, get, they don't get, gain an unfair advantage, don't get themselves in a monopolistic position where they can um, control um, outrageous um, tranches of, of the public uh, resources and wealth, um, you know, that, that rules are put in place to, to try and prevent uh, one person taking all within a capital system. Um, but if you get rid of the rules, if you, if you adopt a, you know, a mantra that, you know, we don't need government, government's a bad thing, uh, rules are a bad thing, let the magic of the markets, you know, solve all, uh, you know, basically dog eat dog, um, mm. then, uh, you know, what you're actually doing is allowing a few people in strategic positions to grab everything. So we, I think capitalism works as long as there are fair rules that everyone has to abide to equally. I mean, you and I live in fear of, um, you know, maybe underpaying our taxes by a couple of hundred quid. Um, mm. The most rich and wealthy corporations, as, as people are increasingly now aware, have managed to um, rig the system, game the system, so that they pay no tax whatsoever. Um, mm. And that's all been done um, in the name of deregulation. Mm. Good thing. It's not. Mm. We have to regulate ourselves. We have to have laws. And everyone should equally abide by them. Mm. And how can the, the media help? I think you, what you've done is such an amazing example. Well, yeah, you, uh, you can't fix what you don't know. Um, people can't uh, demand or vote uh, for something if they don't 
if they haven't been informed about the problems. The media play a vital role in uh, any kind of democracy. Um, they hold, they should be holding to account, shedding light, um, helping explain, simplify uh, to, to the person who only has maybe, you know, 10 minutes at the start of a day uh, of a busy working life. Um, you know, they, we all need to attend to our democracy. It's, you know, you know, it's it's a job. It's one of our chores, you know, to, to vote wisely and to keep ourselves sufficiently informed. And, you know, obviously, if you've got a busy job, you know, uh, doing something else, tilling a field or, or, or whatever, you know, you can't necessarily be fully on top of every every detail of what is going on. It's the job of a media to responsibly uh, present um, facts um, you know, to, to people so that they can they know what's going on in their world. And, and part of this insidious um, corrosion of our democracy that is what, how I would see it over the last uh, few decades um, has been to prevent the media from doing that job, has been to dumb it down, uh, to divert it, distract it, um, you know, away from things that we need to be attending to, all of us, and understanding we the, the media has been shut up and silenced and uh, it needs to get back to work the thing that these powerful thieves fear most is exposure mm. that's 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 what they cannot afford and that's why it's so important to silence the media that's the why the first thing an oppressive regime does is intimidate control and um shut down any independent uh, media were you ever frightened while you were investigating this? Was there ever any time you were threatened? I've oh yes yes I have been I have been threatened and um, yes I look over my shoulder a lot. Um, certainly at the height of this, I, I used to you know I used to think because I'd go for a walk in the countryside and think hmm, that'd be a good place for a sniper. I do this job. I do this walk rather too often, you know. Um, you do, um, and of course journalists. I mean, I'm lucky. Um, you know, I'm, 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 I'm mainly in safe parts of the world. We all know how journalists are killed um, in great numbers all over the world, far braver people than me. And, and that I keep in my mind, you know, there are far braver journalists um, trying to confront um, corruption um, all over the world who have lost their lives in the doing of it. Um, and I think the reason why they do it in the same way as someone goes and fights for their country in a war is that they, they think it's important and they're right. They mm. think it's a, they think it, it it's you know um, make or break for 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 everything they believe in and for their society, for the future of our planet and our future generations that the truth be reported. So um, that I think you know takes you through these slightly challenging um, uh, assignments. Um, and uh, along mm. with a fair dose of anger, actually, at what, at what one sees going on. Mm. So what can we do as a, as a general public to support uh, the media, such as yourself, to, to keep investigating and to uncover the truth? Well, um, I think support campaigns to um, to free up the media. I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm involved in quite a lot of campaigning now, having had a number of vexatious legal suits against me um, that have, mm. you know, been, that caused me a lot of um, grief in the UK. Um, I, I now campaign to uh, improve our libel laws and to um, 
and to help journalists do their jobs safely without having, uh, you know, the roof taken from over their heads for, for writing the truth and then having to defend themselves against slap suits. Uh, you know, which is, you know, a wealth, the wealthy and powerful criminal regards um, channeling um, a, percentage, a certain percentage of their stolen money into law firms to reputation law firms to, um, you know, to protect themselves from from scrutiny. Um, they, they regard that as a business expense. And so it is. Um, so we need to campaign to to uh, free journalists to do their jobs um, without that kind of um, pressure and um, deterrence um, in our own country, in Britain, um, and related jurisdictions, of which there are many who share our oppressive libel laws. Um, you know, that's one thing the public can do. Um, and, and, and just to become aware of these stories um, and to vote accordingly. Mm. Yeah, sometimes we perhaps take for granted that 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 which we have in fact not sometimes it's kind of one of the conditions of being human is forgetting how lucky we are and perhaps for you have it having you know grown up in Malaysia and coming to the UK years later perhaps that's given you a sense of balance or, or perspective that has allowed you to keep up this fight for for so long because you really know what you're fighting for I think there's a terrifying complacency that I think we're beginning to realise. I think maybe the, the, the frightening events um, of the past few years in, in, in America, that's supposed mm -hmm. to be the bastion of, of a free democratic society, has helped bring this home to a number of people at least. Uh, we have a frightening complacency as if our democracies had always existed and were going to continue effortlessly, um, you know, by some kind of, you know, right. Um, there are you know, there are so many interested parties who would love to see the end of our democracies. And, you know, we need to we need to be guardians of our freedoms and our liberties and the rule of law. And, you know, and every single member of a democracy has a responsibility to to be vigilant and to use our brains to think, to inform ourselves um, and to vote wisely. Otherwise, we will we will lose by default these valued uh, institutions. Um, you know, we could slip back into um, oppressive government very easily. That's what frightens me. We're too complacent. We think that won't happen and it so easily can. As we've sort of seen in Malaysia. Absolutely. After <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. There are greedy people who want everything and they want to control everything and they're everywhere. Hmm. What's what's the future for, for you in the Sarawak report? Are you continuing to investigate and to put pressure on the government? Well, yes. I mean, tragically, you know, there was a triumph of um, democracy in Malaysia in 2018 and uh, a recent coup uh, by the establishment whose, um, you know, profitable um, exploitation of their country was interrupted by that development, um, who have seized power again in Malaysia. Um, and democracy and parliament has hardly sat since um, and has received an order from the uh, the king of Malaysia to pass the budget um, and not oppose it on the very rare occasion it has been allowed to sit. Um, so um, 
uh, it, it's, you know, it, it, it's depressing. And, and what can you do as a journalist but continue to perform your role, um, which, is, which is circumscribed? I mean, you know, we all team together. The role of the journalist is to report what's happening and to throw light on what's happening and to explain a little bit around what's happening if that is necessary you know not everybody has the chance to maybe open up the country's constitution and examine it for several hours and then point out you know and then realize that what x or y has done counters the constitution it's the role of the journalist to say look x has just broken the constitution um what are you going to do about that members of the public Mm. authorities and all the rest you know so it's um you know, it's it's a it's a job that will always need to be done, and and I guess I'm just carrying on doing it. Um, I'm in the slightly um, peculiar situation of having done this as a voluntary project, um, yeah. which has liberated me um, in many respects. Uh, you know, I don't have a boss or a lawyer to um, you know to slap down my um, my uh, my views or to stop me publishing the truth, um, which is you know any journalist in the mainstream media world, you know, knows that it's very hard to get out um, challenging stories for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's liberated me, but it hasn't paid my bills. Um, <laughs> so it's, a, you know, it's, it's a tricky one. Speaking of which, I'd like to highlight at this point that you have written a book about this experience. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, you can buy the book. Um, <laughs> Um, there are two books. There's one one called The Sarawak Report, which is named after my blog, which tells the story of just exactly how um, I had this extraordinary experience of unraveling the biggest financial scandal um, recorded. And um, then there's an easy racier version uh, called The Wolf Catcher. <laughs> um, lighter reading, um, which pretty much tells you the same story. But you know, if you if you if you could if you feel you could do a pass on the um, financial detail, that's the one for you. Okay. Now, is there not an interesting story behind the book publishing as well, in which mm. everything was was ready to go when you had a publisher, and then for whatever reason that didn't play out yes well it's it's like so much else um you know um i i ended up having to write my own blog in order to cover the stories that i thought were important that mainstream media you know weren't interested in covering i.e deforestation on the other side of the planet um and um having written this book about the one mdb scandal the moment the moment it went up on Amazon that it was going to come out, um, my publisher uh, received a series of threatening uh, legal letters financed by Joe Lowe out of the money he'd stolen from 1MDB, um, in which he, uh, he, you know, he threatened my publisher and, and also indeed sent a letter to every single bookshop in Britain, threatening them if they were to pub- if they were to sell the book. Um, oh my god! Um, and um, yeah, uh, on the basis, not that you know, I libeled Jolo um, because, of course, they hadn't read the book, but because they thought I might <laughs> libel him, mm. um, and that uh, mm. you know, and and even if it turned out not to be libelous, um, it would prejudice the trial that he would undoubtedly um, undergo in the United States, were he ever to be captured as a wanted man. Um, as a global financial fugitive. So you have a London law firm who is willing to take money from somebody who acknowledges 
that he's a global financial fugitive uh, wanted by um, the DOJ and the FBI and numerous other jurisdictions around the world. Um, they're prepared to take that stolen money um, in order to shut up me, my publisher, my book and threaten bookshops in the United Kingdom. God. And um, there was another more heavyweight book uh, being published at the same time about 1MDB by some other journalists um, who had a very big uh, publisher, United States publisher. And uh, both my publisher and that uh, major outfit in the United States uh, felt threatened and intimidated by those legal um, threats um, and pulled out of publishing the book. So I had to start up a publishing firm um, and publish my own book, um, which I did, um, in order to get this information out to the public. So that gives you a sense of just, uh, you know, what a, what a state of affairs we've arrived at, frankly, um, mm -hmm. that it needed me to say, damn you, I've been sued enough by you lot, um, mm -hmm. and I'm not going to bow to this, and I'm going to take the risk, I guess. Um, they didn't sue me, of course. <laughs> <I've had> a... <laughs> it's just uh, you barely sweat now. <laughs> well, um, I've had I was one or two have been taken to, as far as a writ, but um, you know, um, so far, so far, um, uh, none of the various lawsuits that have been threatened, launched, and indeed are continuing to uh, go through the system have been won against me. Thank you for your tenacity, Claire. <laughs> it helps to and have truth you. on your side, you know, even if you, even if power and money is not on your side, it, it, truth is a powerful weapon. Mm. Absolutely. And <sighs> so powerful a blog and a radio show can topple a government, uh, expose a, a network of elites across the world and highlight, as you say, the the very flimsy hold that we have left on democracy in a globalized world. Yes. So please come and join me, folks, aspiring journalists around the world. It's worth doing. may not make you rich, but but you're needed. Actually, it's. I would like to ask that question. Would you suggest to aspiring journalists around the world, you know, if you have a story, even if you can't find somebody to, to write it for, write it yourself and put it up there and just try and spread the word yourself? Yes, absolutely. Of course. Um, and I think there's a growing network of journalists who are doing just that. And again, the internet has been a powerful instrument. Um, it has mm. been horrendously abused by, um, you know, ruthless um, operators who've... Um, flogged their services to to misinform um but you know it's it's a it's a battle and and you know um generally in the if you know if there if the if the information is out there i have i have like a jury i have confidence that um information versus misinformation in the end the truth should win the day the truth will out <laughs> claire rucastle brown thank you so 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 much Thank you, this has Rachel. Been astounding. <laughs> Thank this has you been for the remembering. <laughs> to, to finish up, I do uh, ask if um, if there's anyone that you would like to, to platform. Well, you might do very well to talk to um, if he'll 
be able to spend you the time. Um, Xavier Juste, who uh, played a separate role, um, but, you know, absolutely, you know, symbiotic role in exposing this scandal. Um, mm -hmm. He was one of the key whistleblowers who decided mm -hmm. uh, to bring out the inside information. And anyone who's been in the business of journalism for any period of time uh, will will know that, you know, the journalist is only as good as their source. It's not mm -hmm. about, you know, data and all the rest. It's about getting the inside information out. And mm. Xavier was the ultimate insider. And, uh, you know, eventually Xavier, the insider, and me, the inquisitive journalist, found each other. Mm. And that was the, uh, you know, that was the genesis of the exposure of 1MDB. So his side of the story is a different one. And you might be interested to hear what it takes to be a whistleblower. It's a, yeah. He spent 18 months in a Thai jail uh, for his pains. Um, so, yeah, it's an interesting story. Okay, thank you. I will look him up. Thank you so much.